Hello and welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Edward Francis Brand. I, I, that's not my name. I spoke this week with Dr. Amishi Jha. Dr. Amishi Jha is a professor of psychology at the University of Miami and director of contemplative neuroscience for the Mindfulness Research and Practice Initiative. She studies mindfulness meditation and writes about the observable effects it has on our brain boxes and our mind holes and our attention. Her book, Peak Mind, is out now. You should get it. Jen, did you enjoy that episode? Do you remember uh, it? Yeah, uh, yeah, mostly, yep. Yeah. That's your insight, <laughs> is it? What have you been doing this week? Uh, I've been doing some work uh, last week. What about uh, you I sleeping? I like sleeping up there. It's really nice. You'd like it. I ain't been up there for ages. It's really private, so if someone even came in the studio, no one would see me. I'd be up there in my... But if you're in the... What circumstances are you describing where you're up there and someone comes in the studio? Like, let's say I sleep in. Past, I'm really aware that, but I don't sleep in. Because some, someone comes in. a colleague might come in. And you'll be up there vulnerable. Yeah, pyjamas. You don't really want to be in pyjamas in your work office. So do you change up there or do you change down here? Change down here. Because we've got this nook. <laughs> it's up, too nucky up there to change. You can't change in a nook. Up there, is there any dead flies up there? I don't know. I don't really look around. You just go up there in the dark and go straight to bed. I go up there and I put a sheet on the thing and bring up the duvet and the pillow. Put my phone on charge. Yeah. Have a little think and then go to what sleep. What do you mean little thing? <laughs> think. Of all the things I want to think about before I go to oh, bed. No, tell me what they are. Oh. <laughs> Let me in there. No, my brain is my brain. <laughs> Where is it though, Jen? Or have we all been conditioned? I always used to think, do we think our mind is up here because our eyes are up here? What if your mind is in your knee or your consciousness is in your shin? That's the thoughts I used to have all the time. Jen, <laughs> even back like in your... That? Even your own childhood, you were a silly little... Well, I used to think we only think our consciousness is in our brain because that's where our eyes are and that's where we see out visually. Right? Jenny, no. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? No, it's not good. Because when you close your eyes, Jen, yeah. as I do when I'm doing my above-the-noise meditations that you can get on this platform, very yeah. good meditations by me, one of the greats, your eyes are shut. And where do you sort of feel... Where do you feel the centre of your it, being Do you think is? it's because you know your eyes are there? Look, stop, you're obsessed <laughs> with the eyes. Is it because your own eyes and are trying mine. to turn into one no, big that's eye? that's mean. My name is, first of all, thinks that you live in your mouth. You see, it's another thing because it's it's one of the sen like the main senses, communicative ones. Don't try and jump on Martin Amos's bandwagon. <laughs> he thinks you live in the mouth. You think you live for some reason in the eyes. But if you actually close, where do you think you live? In um, the winky. <laughs> no, like, I think like if you think about it, like when you shut your eyes, can't you feel your? I can feel my head. I can feel my heart. <laughs> I'm glad you can feel your head. What about this down here? This lower chakra areas. That now definitely there's a bias towards the kind of um, head centered thinking yeah. isn't it materialist individualistic yeah. neuro neurotic neurological but that's what thinking. i'm saying i think it could be in the shin look jen stop <laughs> making this case for the shin for the, the culture of the shin with jenny may finn jenny that'd may be, shin that'd be good jenny yeah. may shingo imagine it was in there imagine it no well, it i guess it can't be part of the body because some people don't have shins that's right you <laughs> shinist pig you goddamn shinist. Well, so you think you live down the bottom? No, the head. I'm always uh, in the head. I can feel the head more than any other things. But like, what I try and do in meditation is bring myself to the heart or the belly. Or sometimes the hands, because you can really feel, I mean, just in terms of density of, of nerve endings, lips, reproductive organs, fingertips. My That's hands disappear when I meditate. I can't feel them when I meditate. Have you ever seen that map? Like it's a sort of a Ruby Wax, who's been a guest on the show. Like in her book, I don't think she coined this, but there's like a diagram of the body and it, it enlarges the areas where there is more sensory information, i.e. like the right hand, if you're right handed, it, it feels bigger in your dominant, in your consciousness. Your lips feel bigger. The reproductive organs feel bigger. You know, like if you bring your awareness to the hands. Actually, I can feel my left hand more. Hang on a minute. <laughs> I can kind of feel my eyebrows. Yeah, well, we can all feel your eyebrows, <laughs> Jen. There's tumbling across the room, bloody great big things. We match. Like a couple of brushes. We've got the same ones. Do you think so? Yeah. But I thought I had nice eyebrows. I, I said do I. You think that we both got nice yeah. ones? They frame our face well. I suppose it's where your <laughs> eyes are so close together, Jen. No, you, you've got yeah. little eyes. What, what do you mean? I've got big... <laughs> no, they're small. Hold on a minute, they're, they're gorgeous. They're tiny. Let me look at them. <laughs> they're not big. They're enormous. They're like brown, and I guess people really like your eyes. Of course they do. Everyone's yeah. well into them. So you think I'm like, like a little pip eye? Yeah. Do you think so? 
Hold on, I'm looking at it now. The whites of my eyes are expansive. I'm like that Emma Stone. <laughs> expansive. <laughs> yeah, expansive, Jenny. Not expansive. Look at these big whites of the eyes. No, but I'm talking about the eye itself. That eye's the eye. <laughs> no, the white isn't the eye. Well, it is, but it's it isn't. It's a big part of the eye, It's a bit eye, no Jen. one cares about. There's the whites. There's the, <laughs> what, you think I've got little irises and poopals? <laughs> is that what you're saying? Maybe it's the eyebrows that make them look smaller. Yeah, because they're monstrous, aren't they? They're gorgeous things. It's impossible okay, not to... Okay, stop looking at yourself. Actually, I was just reading text there. Now, let's get... <laughs> let, look, let's listen to the comments. Now, time for comments. Matt Shakespeare says, I couldn't agree more with Russell Brand. Jenny Mae Finn has got one big eye no, in the middle of her head like a no. cyclops and one eyebrow. It's the one thing I can't change about me. What? My eyes. Well, what else my bit, it's always been my thing. Since, some, since someone told me, oh... Good-looking people have slightly wider set eyes and more symmetrical. And he said, said it, it straight up, John. Was it John <laughs> or <laughs> Tom Bard? No, it wasn't John Barnes. Was he saying it to you, Jen? Yeah, he was because he was in Tipperary. I was in the pub. I remember being in the beer garden of this pub in, in Tipperary. Yeah. Is it possible and that you did? He wasn't looking at you, and your eyes where they're so close mm. together, you couldn't see proper. No. <laughs> so John, John in the gu- who is John? He was in the band with my first boyfriend. Right. Who's your first boyfriend? Adrian, you met him. Did I? Yeah. Well, when you used to come to my shows? Yeah. Those were simpler times. <laughs> All right, listen, let's get on with this. Okay. Matt Shakespeare, I couldn't agree more. Jenny's eyes are too close <laughs> together. No, he says, like, I couldn't uh, agree more. I consider myself a liberal sort of lefty and I feel exactly the same as Brad. The left has slowly become so obscure, it's hard to understand our modern ideological, I'm going to say systems there, Matt, even though you said ideas. Modern ideological systems can even be, oh no, no, they've used system later. Modern ideological tropes, modern ideological, go on, Jen. Um, We need to replace the word ideas. Notions? Yeah, notions. Modern (laughs) ideological notions can even be implemented in a political system. I agree, Matt. Ali Reid, Brad seems like an otherwise chill and sensible dude. When the most sensible people start speaking like we're in a fire drill, it's time to pay attention. Nice one. Thank you both Matt and Ali. You will be sent a free mug uh, with the, well, they'll say it on it, it is, was, isn't Russell great? No. Yeah. Listener shout outs. Listener shout outs. This one is for Ella Gregory. I wanted to thank you for platforming Vandana Shiva. Is that what I did to her? Platformed her? Yeah, instead of deplatforming. So, yeah, you've got a platformer. She's so inspiring and I'm so grateful to have an easy way to listen to her synthesis of ideas. Yeah, a history of agriculture, philosophy and spirituality. Listen to two of you speak so I enjoy. She nearly makes me cry, don't you, Jen? Yeah, every time. Because I love her so. Laura Cheeseman, your podcasts have given me... I've given me my everyday lift. When the day seems especially heavy, I plug into one of your talks. The banter between you and JMF. Why don't you like JMF? Shouldn't you're not like a little band. You're not a little kid. People call me JMF often. Do they, Jen? Yeah. Are you sure? Uh (laughs) (laughs) Already shifts my mind and puts a smile on my face. I'm so grateful you exist. Much love from Sweden. Thank you, Laura. That's really lovely. I really appreciate your praise. And and do you know who I met? I met that guy that I said in the podcast. Come up to me and say dingalingaling. Luke. Yeah. Did he buy a ticket? He, I don't know. No, I think we gave him tickets, no. didn't we? He came out and he went, ding, ling, ling. He actually said it. Oh, that's good. And it was like really mad. I felt that moment rush back. I love things like that. Yeah. Don't you love that? I mean, I don't usually communicate with people like this. Well, I'm glad. Because <laughs> so that moment did happen in Ireland. Remember I said someone came up to me. What did they say? Eyes are too... They just said, hey, Jen. Tipperary And job. I just went, did that thing where you scan your memory with all the images of people you have? Yep. Who have you got in there? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? You've got a good, good little memory bank, is it, Jen? Yeah, but I get pa- panicked. Yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> now, listen, Above the Noise is my meditation podcast. Listen to that right now and enlighten yourself. And also, I'm on tour. Come and see me on tour and come up to me and say ding-a-ling-a-ling. I've added, I've added some dates. I'm going to be in Scotland, Glasgow and Edinburgh there. I want to go to your country, Jen, but it's very hard to get there. No, it's not. It's like oh, 40, it? 40 minutes on a plane. But, and it like... um. Travel restrictions. Oh yeah, it's well, it's not. It's easy to get there, but difficult to enter. Get out again. What? Oh, you can get. What did you say? <laughs> easy to get there, but difficult to enter. <laughs> <laughs> what? what do you mean? So I can get there. Then what's going to happen to me? Then they'll ask for all of your COVID stuff. Whoa. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll be there soon. Uh, 
So um, why don't you sign up to my mailing list and you get really good content now. It's actually become a bit of a burden. I'm putting so much good stuff on the mailing list. I'm like reading, like, I'm trying to analyze, I'm simultaneously trying to analyze the Master and Margarita, 1984, Marcus Aurelius, Alice in Wonderland. It's too dark. I'm going to have to pare it down a bit. Yeah, just do one book. I'm just going to do one book. <laughs> All right, so uh, also check out my YouTube channel, subscribe to it, particularly the Awakening side channel. I'm really trying to grow that now. I'm growing it. So get on there and sign up to it. Uh, but now let's get into this chat with uh, Amishi Jar. Pretty good chat, wasn't it? Yep. Learned a lot. All right, let's go and listen to it. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Hello, Amishi. Thanks for joining me on Under the Skin. Excited to be here. With your new book, Peak Mind, you are looking at ways that we can demonstrate scientifically the benefits of mindfulness is that right um it's that is an uh, that is what i ended up talking about but actually my whole journey with this started with a big question regarding how we might be able to protect this very precious brain resource of attention and we were pursuing lots of different options but it ended up that out of all the things that we were looking at and investigating in my lab the only one that tended to reliably and consistently show benefits was mindfulness training. What so other, yes, that's what I ended up talking about in the book. What other things did you investigate? We looked at things like simple light and sound devices, which there's a lot of evidence, sorry, there's a lot of interest from many different companies to develop devices that might help. We looked at Mood induction, so positive mood. Can you actually put people in a positive mood and see beneficial effects? All of these things, you know, at some, and, and sorry, the biggest one is probably brain training games. That's a big one. So these are these commercially available still games where you play simple, like video games that are attentionally demanding. And you do that for many, many days. And then you see what the impact is. And all of these types of approaches show some, some beneficial effects, but they don't seem to endure over time and they don't seem to transfer to new contexts. How do you... So you get better at the... Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say you get better at the video game, but then you transfer to some other situation, even change superficial features, and all of a sudden you're back down to as if you just saw it for the first time. How do you measure the efficacy of mindfulness is it through observing neurological activity or is it with through results behavioral results both so i'm a i am a neuroscientist so in my lab we look at functional mri brainwave recordings looking at brain electrical activity we look at performance measures that are laboratory based but we also look at real world performance measures so things like academic achievement or pass rates on standardized tests or in the context of a lot of the work that I do with military service members their military performance so qualifications that they have to pass etc so both kind of at the brain level at the performance level and then of course we ask them about the experience with their own lives how is their stress level mood etc can you give a us some examples of how you saw mindfulness being effective in the lives of your subjects and sort of give us a sort of an idea of over what time scale it's happening and yeah. at the beginning they were like this and by the end they were like that yeah 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 so you know i would say that the search that we were on through the science was really regarding tractable benefits with some objective measures. So this, the, it, of course we wanted them to feel better and to perform better and to live more functional lives, but the test was going to be rigorous. And I'll just give you an example of the kind of experiment that we do. It's a very kind of simple experiment, but once I describe it, you'll see why it can become so challenging. So this would be a laboratory-based measure. And and then we'll go into sort of the, the consequences for people's real lives. So what we have people do is we, we essentially 
let's just take our soldiers, for example, go to a military base, set up a lab on the military base. We've certainly done this with brainwave recordings, but what I want to describe to you is really just performance. They sit in front of a computer screen and the task is for the next 15 minutes, you're going to see a series of numbers appear on the screen. Every time you see a digit appear, press the space bar, except when that number is three. So it's pretty boring. It happens about one every half second or so. They're sitting there pressing, pressing. Those threes are infrequent, about 5% of the time. And you can imagine what happens. It's intentionally designed to be very, very boring and result in people mind wandering, and they do. So pretty soon you're pressing, 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 and the three appears, you totally miss it. And usually it's followed by some kind of expletive where people are angry that they saw it, but they pressed anyway. And then every now and then we actually stop the experiment sort of as it's progressing and ask a couple of questions. So where is your attention right now? Is it on the task or is it somewhere else? How aware are you of where your attention is? Is it second, second question? So we look at things like how often they press when they should and don't press when they shouldn't and what their ratings are on if they're on task or not and how aware they are. And people are pretty bad at this experiment, mm. uh, as you can imagine, like terrible. Like 50% of the time they miss the three. Uh, and most of the time they're reporting that they're completely unaware. And what we do is we give it to them at the beginning of some period of time. And then usually we, we time our experiments so that they are occurring, our experiments and our training are occurring during what we call a high stress interval. All of us have experienced those in our lives. Demands are, are intense, they're protracted. So it could be military training, it could be pre-deployment training. For undergraduates, it could be the academic semester. For new moms, it could be just postpartum. You know, there's so many examples of this in our lives. But we, we, we experiment, we provide this kind of an experiment at the beginning of some interval, or at least when we can get them. And then we come back four to eight weeks later and do the same exact experiment again. And if people are experiencing high stress during that time, feelings of overwhelm, negative mood, potentially feeling evaluative threat in some way, significant declines in their performance over time. They just get worse. That means they're, they, miss to the, they miss the three more often. They report being off task more often. They report being unaware more often. And then your question regarding mindfulness training, for some groups, we'd offer mindfulness training. Others, we would uh, offer some other form of training, usually multiple conditions. And what we see is that whether it's no training or some other training, they decline. But if it's mindfulness training and they're practicing for the required amount of time, or at least around 12 minutes a day or so, they're stable over time. They don't seem to show this vulnerability of the high stress period, uh, which is our indication that the training is having an impact on their ability to stay present. They're not mind wandering as often. And the way it translates into people's lives is very much the way that, that you might expect in, in given your familiarity with meditation in general, more the experience of being more embodied, more present in their lives. The things that used to result in a lot of distractibility and even distress, they're more able to handle them. It's not that they don't experience the stress, it's that their presence during it is still still there and st still they're capable of handling whatever's before them. Does that answer your question? Yes, it certainly does, thank you. Additionally, what do you see in the MRI scans that you conduct that suggest a positive benefit of mindful practices? Yeah, so this is the, this is where we can really benefit from an entire field of research called cognitive neuroscience, cognitive and affective neuroscience, where for the last 30 years or so, we've been able to use tools like functional brain imaging, bringing people into the scanner, having them do these same kind of simple tasks, and then evaluate the brain networks that are active. And we've learned a lot from those basic studies, and we've identified at least four networks in the brain that are very, very important for attention. And if you don't mind, I'd love to just tell you a little bit about those networks and because then, then we can start understanding why it matters, why it matters that there's changes in the functioning of, that, of these networks and the nature of them. So, so essentially we're talking about sort of three main systems of attention. And that happens to be the, the field that I, I study. So again, we look at it through all these different methodologies. We could look at people that have brain damage. We could look at their brains directly, look at their performance. But 
it really does characterize what we know in our ordinary lives is the way we pay attention. And in some sense, attention is this really, really profound um, evolutionary inheritance that we have that allows us to privilege some information over other information. That's sort of the most fundamental way I could probably describe attention. Just curious, when I say when I say attention, like what does that conjure up for you? What do you usually think about? Attention means that within the field of my awareness, I can electively focus on and remain present with a particular object or set of facts. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> so I love that, you know, sort of just in your, in your subjective experience and your knowledge, you know what this is. And we might even shorthand it, just focus, the ability to hold that information present in our mind where everything else is sort of dimmed down, but that information is, is more salient, clearer, crisper. And certainly when, the, when content, when certain content is privileged, that's a very big role that attention has. That's something we formally call the, the orienting system of attention. And I like to use the metaphor of sort of a flashlight, so, or a torch, depending on the part of the world that you live in. So you're in a darkened room. And in some sense, the brain, if we think of our evolutionary ancestors, it was like it was dark. They were not able to, the, those brains, those, those early brains were not able to fully, nor are we today, able to fully process all the information that was available in the environment at all. It was just overwhelming for that brain. Same thing for the information generated internally. So attention ends up being a terrific evolutionarily selected for solution to subsample. Let's get a little piece of data here, a little piece of data here. Let's put it all together to kind of understand the working framework of our environment so we can survive. So that flashlight or torch metaphor can be really helpful because essentially what we're doing is directing, as you said, willfully, I think you use that term willfully or on purpose in some way, that computational resource, we get the information and then we can move on. It ends up that that torch or flashlight is not just now for the external environment, though it's obviously very important for that, it's for the internal environment as well. So as you mentioned, if you have an idea or a concept or a phrase or whatever it is in your mind in one moment, when you direct the flashlight of your mind to that, it becomes prominent and salient. But it ends up that that kind of orienting system, it's only one way that we privilege and prioritize information. Uh, which its job is really to select based on the content. Another really important system uh, that sometimes I refer to as, well, I don't refer to it this way. The field refers to it as the alerting system. I refer to it sort of as a metaphor of a floodlight or a fog light. And its job is to just be broad and receptive to what's occurring. The thing that it privileges is the present moment. What is happening right now in this moment? And we're not trying to be narrow and selective. We're trying to be kind of equating and not privileging anything in terms of what might occur in this moment, but being aware and receptive to its occurrence. So sort of a phenomenological way that, I, I mean, I know that you know what this experience is, but you're driving down the road or walking down the road and you see some kind of yellow flashing light. Maybe it's near a school or construction site. That phenomenology of in this moment, I don't know what I'm supposed to necessarily be looking for, but I better be here right now because I need to act potentially if something happens. A weird piece of construction equipment arrives or there's children walking I didn't know about or animals, whatever it is, but it's privileging in a very, very different way. And then the third system, so we've got orienting, alerting, um, you know, staying this vigilant quality of being in the here right now. And then the third way we privilege information is not so much about what it is, meaning content that may be externally present to us or even appear in our mind or the present moment, but it's based on our goals. So what is it that I want to be doing? What is important to me right now? What is my goal right now? And all of the rest of the brain can get reconfigured in the service of that goal. And this system, sometimes called the executive control system, its job is to ensure that our goals and our behavior are aligned. And then to course correct if there's a mismatch. So if right now my my intention, my goal is to look at your face, to see if you're 
actually hear, understanding what my words, scrutinize your facial expressions. That would be a much better thing for me to do is to actually look at you than to be on my phone or hear somebody in the other room and walk away or whatever it is. So we've got to maintain the goal. We've got to update the goal if something changes. If a fire alarm goes off in my building, I'm going to run out of here. My goal changed. Or to shift when circumstances change. This I sometimes refer to as the juggler. It's just a little metaphor. I and mean, all these metaphors are just handy ways. I actually did, did, probably came up with them over the course of explaining to my now, now older, but then young children, what the heck I study when I study the brain's attention system. So this one, the juggler is this notion of all the balls are in the air. We've got to keep them fluidly aligned. And just like the executive of a company, this system's job isn't to do all the individual things that are required, but to coordinate and manage so that goals and behavior continue to stay aligned. So to go back to your actual question, that's three main systems, you know, flashlight, floodlight, juggler. There's a fourth. And the fourth is really, I would say in some ways, what happens when, when those people were, were doing that experiment and they didn't press to the three. Their mind went somewhere else. And sometimes we refer to this, this way of making the mind, meaning off-task thoughts. There is a task at hand, but you're not there. You're somewhere else. Usually you're internal. You're, you're preoccupied by some thought. You're mentally time-traveling away from this moment. And it's typically the central figure in this internal meandering is the self. Something about me, my, my uh, you know, whatever, my state, my preferences, whatever. We know this from, we know about this network. It's, it's often called, and you've probably encountered it too in, in uh, prior conversations around this, the default mode network. So the default mode, in some sense, it was named this because we do this like 50% of our waking moments by default. But we know it because what we did, it was a mystery. We'd put people in the scanner and we'd have them do various tasks that were like the flashlight task or a floodlight task or an executive control task. And we'd see distinct networks that show up and they are distinct. We can see the brain networks, multiple nodes that kind of uh, work together to allow us to point the flashlight willfully or to be aware of what's happening in the moment and notice immediate emergent novel stimuli or have a goal that we keep in mind. But this other network kept appearing when things were not externally demanding, but we just basically said, go ahead and rest, just rest. You know, we're gonna do five minutes of this intensive attention task, and now we want you to rest. And we expected that nothing really systematic would occur, but this system kept showing up, this default mode network kept showing up. And so initially we just probed people, like what the heck are you doing when we tell you to rest? And it, they said all kinds of things. I'm thinking about how boring this is. I'm thinking about what I want to do once I get out of here. I'm thinking about how much money am I going to get paid for this? It was always me, me, me. Uh, to the point where sometimes we kind of joke around where we say, okay, the, the thing we tell people to do during rest, it's not restful at all. And that, that term rest, R-E-S-T, may just be rapid, R, ever-present, E, self-related, S, thinking, T. So the the... Your question, which is, I'm sorry, I'm going on for a little bit long, but I think it just want, I wanted to get a sense of like, let's put it all on the table of, of the brain networks that are even involved in any of these things that attention does. So then we can start talking about what something like mindfulness training actually strengthens. Well, it was an exceptional piece of information. Thank you for the clarity. Now, looking at these um, four functional networks, the what I'm going to call, I'm going to use your metaphors for simplicity, like the flashlight, the application of attention, the fog light, kind of a broader, more general attention, the executive, the ability to juggle and make decisions and this sort of defaulted self-condition. When you're observing synaptic activity, just may I ask, what is it that is being read? Is it electrical activity? So with functional MRI, we aren't actually able to access direct activity of neurons. What we're doing is actually looking at another indicator that neurons are active. So anytime neurons fire, there's an overabundance of oxygenated blood that they need. So blood supply increases locally to these nodes of neurons that are more in use. And what we're doing with functional MRI is we're tapping into the magnetic signature of oxygen versus deoxygenated blood, and we're picking that up with a magnet. So it's very cool that we have this sort of property of blood that the 
the hemo, what we call the, 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 the heme, the, this molecule that is iron related molecule in blood, it shifted, shifts the distribution of where blood is active locally. And then we can pick that up and say, ah, look at that. It's a part of the frontal lobes. It's a part of the parietal lobes. And look, visual cortex, we had them do a visual task. And all of these systems, all of these little nodes are working together. They're timed so that they're coordinated like a, you know, some kind of symphony in the brain that's very specific. I once heard someone talking about dark matter, and they said that you can't observe it, of course, but you can see that it's been present by the activity of concomitant phenomena the same way you would be able to observe if the white ball on a billiard table was invisible and you couldn't see it, but you could see that the red balls were moving. You'd go, oh, well, presumably that's being hit by something. So it's sort of a comparable idea. We can see where the oxygen moves. Well, I'm sorry, just to say that it's not that we can't see neural activity directly. It's that with functional brain imaging, we use this other modality. In another kind of technology in my lab uh, called you know, EEG or brainwave recordings, we put electrodes on the scalp mm. and we can pick up actual neural firing. So when a population of neurons uh, fires together, it's essentially making like a little battery, a little dipole. So there's a positive and negative. And when there is charge like that, it can propagate through the, the, uh, the matter in our brain and we can pick it up at the surface of the skull. So we can pick up actual electrical activity, uh, but we're not doing it in the same way because we're really, we're only kind of guessing, ah, we get beautiful timing, thousands of milliseconds, but we don't exactly know where it is. now. For some populations, like people that have intractable epilepsy, for example, they're, they're going to undergo some kind of brain sur surgery. We can actually implant electrodes in their brain and we can actually pick up firing within their brain. So, you know, in my field of, of, of cognitive neuroscience, it's been a proliferation of excitement because we can now use this functional MRI to get the broad picture of networks we can use brainwave recording to get timing. And even what we call intracranial EEG, we can get precise locations of certain kinds of firing patterns. So we are learning a lot about this. We don't have to rely on the sort of triangulation that you described for, for dark matter. I just wanted to mention that, that I'm just describing this particular technology because it ends up really being really fantastic at telling us about network level activity. And each of these systems that I talked about, the flashlight, the floodlight, the juggler, they're not individual brain regions. They're they're like a like I said, a network of brain regions. They're distinct from each other, but they function in a coordinated fashion. So yes, it's not it's non-local interconnected systems that are communicating. Um. So here are some of my thoughts. One thing that comes to mind, given the the presumed latent comp capacity that fires into action occasionally is the kind of analogy of a kind of state of potentiality that, the, that there are these dormant qualities awaiting activation which can occur as a result of an external stimulant usually delivered through the senses the nature of meditative practice when t undertaken from a theological as opposed to materialist rationalist perspective is the idea that there is potentially access to non-local consciousness, impersonal consciousness, consciousness beyond the individual, often with the panpsychic assumption of consciousness as a fundamental component of reality as opposed to an evolved phenomena of neurology. When you see these coordinated yet still somewhat at least on the basis of what i can ascertain from you talking to me in podcast language as opposed to your indigenous tongue of um, neuroscience when you see these uh, sort of opaque areas and evident mysteries how does that um align with the theological and mystical traditions of meditation that have long understood the potential of these techniques and technologies to access human potential obviously long before the systems of measurement that you are deploying could even be dreamed of i'm so happy you asked me that question <laughs> um so let's start with what we know 
because I love where you're going with this. And I'll just tell you upfront that at this point, as a scientist and sort of even maybe even a representative of a field, the fundamental questions regarding consciousness are still being actively debated. Is consciousness itself, uh, sorry, is the brain itself, let's just stick to the brain. Is the brain a factory for consciousness, which is one of the modalities that you described, or is it an antenna for something far beyond itself as another option? I don't know which of those it is fundamentally. I don't, but I can tell you from what we know from brain science uh, regarding these issues. And I, and I will give you an answer to your question, but I wanted to first go back to the original question, which I thought was so great, which is what the heck happens to the brain when people practice mindfulness? So just to remind you that those three systems that are just intrinsic parts, those three attentional systems, and then even this default mode, intrinsic part of the way the brain functions. And what we're finding with mindfulness training in particular is that the strength, meaning the healthfulness of those attentional systems looks improved. We can see this through what we call cortical thickening. The density of certain uh, nodes within these networks is thicker and a thicker cortical uh, network or thicker nodes, essentially like stronger muscle fibers is, is uh, a sign of healthfulness and strength. So for example, we see that the flashlight, uh, the network supporting that, uh, seems to be in healthier shape or the executive control network, that juggler seems to be in healthier shape or that um, the, the alerting system, that floodlight, what we call the salience network, all of these are identifiable networks. We see that they're strengthening individually, but the really exciting thing is their coordination is strengthening. So they're talking to each other in a much healthier um, manner that suggests functionality will be improved. Now, the, the quality that I didn't mention already that's important to know is that these networks, they are different from each other and they also happen to be antagonistic toward each other. So, and we know this phenomenologically. So if, I, if you're very engrossed in reading something or right now in the context of, of talking to me, you know, we're having a, a conversation, we're focused on the conversation. Uh, probably if somebody started, walked into the room and just started talking to you, it would take you a minute to kind of look up at them and even understand the words that are said. We certainly know this in our everyday experience. Uh, I often will get a what, you know, like, are you listening to me kind of thing, which is essentially the flashlight network is dialed up and it's actively suppressing the floodlight. So our receptivity to the external environment is reduced. Um, so anyway, so the coordination is better. There's cortical nodes that are thicker. And the one kind of thing we see over and over again because that default mode network is also antagonistic toward these attentional networks. So our ability to attend to the external environment and the internal environment, they're almost opposing forces. Mm. And oftentimes we'll go internal when it's more appropriate to be external. Mm. So there's a dialing down of that default mode and a better coordination between attentionally demanding uh, activity and, and default mode activity. So just know that we're in the right space right now. We're talking about at network level activity, we're talking about their coordination, and the growing evidence suggests improvements in things that um, are tied to the instruction of a lot of mindfulness practice, which is paying attention in this very particular way tied to present moment experience. To go back to your question, sorry, let me pause here. Is there, was there something you wanted to say? No, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying listening to you. Okay. So it's such a I mean, I'm thinking of, um, you know, I haven't actually listened to this that, or read this book yet, uh, Carlo Ravelli's book. Um, all I know is that Benjamin Cumberbatch actually <laughs> narrates it. Have you, and you've been, you've read this book. Is that correct? Ravelli's book on sort of metastable meta uh, states that actually may maximize the potentiality of various uh, aspects of what exists sort of in terms of the physics of reality. Is that, are you kind Carlo. of thinking of those terms? Carlo Ravelli came on here and we talked about that book. I didn't ah, read okay. it, but I was able to surmise what might be in the book as best as I might with my limitations uh, based on yeah, the conversation. Yeah, yeah. So, and I, you know, again, I'm not a physicist, but I, um, I am very curious about that idea that all of these are states, you know, any kind of, any moment of our conscious experience where there is a, an identifiable phenomenology means a let's just say some networks are more prominent than other networks. And in some sense, that's a dance. That's the dance of consciousness is the toggling between these states. But the networks themselves are holding this sort of intrinsic quality of 
all the nodes are kind of functioning together. And in some sense, the question has been, what would it mean to have the most potentiality in the brain? We're essentially in this moment, because this is another quality that's important to know about brain dynamics. What is happening right now is so likely to predict what will happen in the next moment. There's a contingency. And we know this from the wisdom traditions as well, right? This sort of notion of, of a contingent uh, nature of reality. And that's true for brain dynamics as well. So in some sense, if we kind of think about uh, uh, Carlo's point of view in terms of physics, now we think about brain dynamics, it's very similar, the prediction. Maybe what happens when we're talking about consciousness and sort of the infinite, and I've kind of played around just in my private life, not so much writing about this professionally of like, you know, what are these notions of enlightenment? What does that actually mean for somebody to have that experience of enlightenment? Maybe what it means is that the way the network is configured, the networks in the brain are configured is to advantage the maximum potentiality. And it ends up through um, brain dynamics. We know what those are called, metastable states. So that in some sense, the coordination between nodes within networks is the least uh, strong. It's the weakest. And so the nodes within networks and the networks themselves are not talking to each other in any organized way. There's been some really interesting work that's looked at cognitive flexibility, this ability to switch tasks and change up tasks, things that we might associate with creativity, for example, that are associated with metastability of, of brain states. So I didn't know where our conversation was going to go, but I was excited that you brought that up because this is a very, very... I think novel area of brain science to understand brain, brain dynamics. You know, we're long, long gone sh are the days or should be the days where we're talking about brain function as one set of, of neurons firing. And then that's everything about what, what functioning is. Um, it's actually getting closer and closer to what a lot of uh, cultural, spiritual, religious teachings talk about with regard to the complexity of reality and its interdependence, its impermanence and its emergent quality. Oh, wow. Sometimes, sometimes I feel that there are various means for appreciating and understanding reality. There's the root, the material observable root, but there is another way, the way of the saints and the sages and the mystics and the rishis, the shaman of shifting between levels of consciousness. Like when William James talks about um, available realms of conscious experience separated by veils you know uh, semiotics and semantics aside these realms of consciousness of course would have a neurological instantiation as well as one that would be regarded by people with primitive linguistic or technological tools as m metaphysical states today i had like a towel around my head for a minute you know and i could just see out of the front of the towel it created a kind of just a little snorkel a little tunnel that i could see reality through and i had to move my whole head to be able to see through this towel and i thought oh look this is my available reality at this moment how presumptuous it would be to imagine that the sensory reality that I receive through the equally limited tunnels of the oral factory and visual senses represents something akin to a total rather than a, albeit collective, subjectivity defined by the hard walls of sensory limitation. And the mystical experience is a way of hopping over those walls. Of course, you never come back with here's the data because we are <laughs> beyond the realm of the senses. And suddenly terms like faith start to make sense because the necessary recognition that if you're ever to venture beyond the kind of ultimately nihilistic, individualistic, materialistic mentality that underwrites much of our contemporary and let's face it, declining cultures is um, underwritten from a, an atheological space where the possibility of these wonders has been long foreclosed. 
through secularism and uh, the kind of worship of materialism and that which can be measured because that is you know that what can be measured is really exciting for reaching measurable conclusions but i think there's a concomitant tendency to become reductive and to forego what are now starting to seem like vital human solutions i know we're straying kind of outside of your um remit but also partly given that you are scientifically studying mystic and spiritual traditions it's for me unavoidable that we enter into the function of of these traditions yeah yeah absolutely and i would say my basic orientation as a scientist is humility I don't know. I don't. I would never be in this business of trying to understand the nature of truth, which is essentially just what science is. It's really a pursuit through a process of understanding what is. Uh, of course, we're nowhere near understanding it. And I would say the reductive qualities are really just, we're on a path. We don't have certain tools yet to be able to look in certain ways, but we have to constantly be on the lookout for our own tunneling of perspective, because then we will not know what the nature of reality actually is. You know, but what I want to say to you is that what I love about kind of the approach you take and that I've been seeing you take recently um, is that given that existing mystery, given the uncertainty, given the uh, limitations of this human form at this particular juncture of where science is, um, we still need to live. And we still have a reality to contend with. And even in this known reality, in the realms of what exists, there is suffering that needs to be tended to. And so a lot of my uh, broader interests, I mean, I would consider myself really a student of consciousness in many ways. But I also see that the the suffering that exists right now is, uh, it's not theoretical, it's real for people. And if some of these tools can be offered in a way that are accessible, and uh, that a particular worldview need not be accepted in order for somebody to access that, those tools. I want to be at the forefront of testing them and offering them. And that's really the spirit behind the, the work that I do in my lab. You know, I was not actually oriented towards studying meditation. I mean, I come, I'm, if you could see me, I'm, I'm an Indian woman. Uh, my family background is that, um, you know, I was actually born in the town that uh, Gandhi's ashram is in, you know, pacifism and and spirituality are sort of the the foundation for my family life and and even raised in in the United States. It was part of what the household was. Both my parents meditated growing up. I would say I was resistant to engaging in in not these practices personally, but for sure bringing them into my professional life as a neuroscientist because I I really thought that they were. Um, totally different worlds. Like, yeah, that's great for them, but not for me and certainly not for the scientific pursuit of understanding the way the brain works. And it was just sort of um, a pain point in my life where I opened up to that thing that my family does, actually maybe something that I can do and that may actually help me. And the only reason I opened up is because a fellow neuroscientist, a colleague of mine, Richie Davidson, who now heads one of the world's premier centers that studies uh, meditation and other forms of, um, you know, mental life, affective neuroscience is another big area. He mentioned it and he mentioned it because he's just started working with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama and studying some of the monks in his lab. And um, he was not sort of open about it yet. This was the early 2000s. Mindfulness and meditation were not things we talked about openly in the scientific community. He came to the uh, University of Pennsylvania where I was a professor and he gave this amazing talk in which he did not talk about meditation at all. What he did is showed brain images, just like the ones that we were talking about with functional MRI, of people that he had induced in the laboratory context to experience a negative mood. For example, uh, remember bad memories, listen to sad music. And he didn't do this just because he's a cruel person. He did this because he wanted to make a point that when you induce somebody in a particular mood state, there's a stable set of brain activity that can be seen. And then he induced somebody to be in a positive state through positive memories and and happy music. And it was quite distinct from a negative. And because of this pain point in my own life where I was really struggling and was experiencing um, a lot of stress and the physiologic symptoms of stress, 
I was curious of how you get that negative brain to look like the positive one. And I literally raised my hand and said, how do you get that thing to look like that? And he called out to the back of the room uh, where I was asking this question, meditation. And I was like, kind of dumbfounded, like, what? <laughs> what? This doesn't compute. It's not the realm of what we're talking about. But of course, later on, he and I spoke about it. And I learned about these practices that he was studying with his monastics. And it opened me up to start practicing myself. And in practicing, I realized this is solving a lot of the challenges that I'm experiencing because it's changing the way that I pay attention. And I'm not the only human being who's suffering in my life. And I'm not the only human being who whose suffering is resulting in challenges with operating in the world and paying attention. And it happened to be that I was already studying attention. So I could offer the lens of neuroscience to really probe this particular brain training modality. And then offer to other people whose attention may similarly be vulnerable and consequential. So it may, me, it may not be life or death for me to have an attentional lapse, but for people like service members or for people like first responders or emergency physicians and caregivers and nurses, it could be. So how can we actually offer these practices in a way that are accessible to um, advantage their ability to do their job in this reality, in this world, with the constraints that I know exist in the prism of my consciousness and the tools of science right now. What type of meditation did you do, Amishi? Mindfulness meditation. So are you familiar with, I know that you practice TM. Do you, do you practice different forms of, of uh, have you practiced mindfulness as well? Yeah, I do different types of meditation. I was oh, okay. taught TM and I do it a lot daily. Yeah. I do. I'm interested if there has been experimentation around a variety of techniques. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, you know, I would say this is where contemplative practice and my budding field, you know, this term did not exist when I, all those years ago when I, when I, when Richie Davidson said the term meditation to me. But the field I'm in now is called contemplative neuroscience, where we're looking to see how various forms of contemplative practice and associated processes are instantiated within the brain uh, using the tools that we have available right now. So, you know, and just to kind of to kind of set the operationalize what I mean when I say the term meditation, not to be reductive, but really to say here's here's the thing that I can say about it right now. To me, as, as again somebody who studies attention and cognitive functions and is interested in in the um, capacity to train cognitive functions and strengthen them through mental training. Uh, to me, meditation is, most broadly speaking, engaging in specific mental activities to cultivate specific mental qualities. And it's very much akin to the term sports. So when I say sports, you get a general idea. It's an umbrella term. But, you know, what a gymnast does and what a volleyball player does, quite different. So in the same way, meditation has different forms of the mental activity that's engaged in to cultivate these specific qualities. And in that sense, you know, if we think about something like transcendental meditation, there is this aspect, and it's it's fun to hear your. Um, I just downloaded your your uh, meditation app the other day to try to listen to like I want to hear the influences in the way that you guide practice. This transcendent qualities, so you're engaging in practices that elicit the sense of of transcendence beyond the self, um, and there are practices for that. Compassion practice, right? So these are different kinds of practices in which what we do is we engage in mental exercises to cultivate a concern for the suffering of others and how to act on behalf of that concern. So again, very different. Compassion is, diff is cultivating something different than, than transcendental meditation in the same way that training to be an Olympic level gymnast is very different than being a volleyball player. Mindfulness is yet another category of contemplative practice, meditation practice, in which the intention is to cultivate a present-centered, sort of non-judgmental, or I like to use non-evaluative or elaborative conceptual terrain, so that we're, we're getting the data of the present moment without a story overlaid upon it. And that, too, has different qualities. So uh, sorry, different practices that we engage in to cultivate those qualities. So now if we use this sort of metaphor of sport, we can see, ah, 
different modalities, different intentions behind why we're practicing. And now we can even have hypotheses regarding the brain systems that may be targets for transformation. And so uh, for me, mostly with practicing mindfulness training, it has been around practicing concentrative practices. So there is a target for where my attention should be. I notice the mind wander away, I return it. it. That I think it shares with a lot of aspects of transcendental practices. But then there's other practices too called open monitoring practices in which the intention is not to narrow the target. It's almost like thinking about the floodlight state. So be open, receptive, but have a steady quality so that the observer of what is occurring in our in the stream of consciousness, if you will, is is just stable. And it allows it allows for the occurrence of thoughts, feelings, and sensations to arise and pass away. With the first one, Amishi, are you doing Vipassana? Are you doing some sort of breath observation? And in the second one, is there is there a mantra or any object of concentration, albeit mental or sensory? The the for the first one, yes, it's tied to you know these are all. I would say mindfulness right now, broadly speaking, has a lot of its modern roots in a lot of Buddhist practice and Vipassana practice would be one of those. The concentrative aspect could be body sensation. It could be uh, tied to the breath, for example, uh, without control over the breath. You're not manipulating the breath. You're taking an observational stance toward it, paying attention to having the target of your flashlight, for example, being on vivid breath-related sensations that you hold stable. That's going to be the target for the whole time. When the mind wanders, you know, the floodlight's watching for that. And then again, when you realize the mind is now no longer on the task at hand, that executive control system comes back and redirects it back to that target. So in many ways, that aspect, the concentrative aspect uh, of the practice, um, high signal to noise ratio, meaning there is something that should be prominent, breath-related sensations. And it's exercising all three of those systems of attention, the flashlight for staying focused, the floodlight for being receptive, and then executive control to get back on track. The second category, to answer your question, has a very low signal-to-noise ratio so that nothing is privileged. There's nothing advantaged. And the only thing that is the task is that nothing is actually advantaged. So if you feel yourself going down a road of mental content, you're actually not doing the task because you're advantaging some content get back, you know, maybe re-anchor on the breath and then allow broad receptive stance uh, to um, observe the ongoing nature of, of reality. Usually my meditative experience begins, even after meditating for some years, with a kind of reluctance while using the um, terms you've provided. I would say that kind of um, self-oriented state you sort of like, oh, I can't bother to do this. Let's do this. Should we, oh, should, I'm going to think about that now. What about when that happened? I want this. My body feels unusual. What's that noise downstairs? Like sort of a kind of a sort of resistance. Then like a like a sort of a flashlight awareness is is utilised for the repetition of a mantra in TM. So it's the continual, but as they always are careful to teach, not assertive or martial, but a kind of a gentle, the same way you would think any other thought, you return to the awareness of the mantra, you turn to awareness, and then, but for me, this becomes a kind of um, tussle between the, you know, the self and the flashlight continually. I return back to still thinking about stuff. I mean, it's really good that I meditate a lot because I don't think I'm a person with a natural proclivity towards it. Then usually maybe there is some sort of fog light, sort of broad awareness without the sort of sense of a kind of a requirement. Like I can feel that the mantra is taking place in a gentler and less uh, intentional way. But then, and this is the thing that I, like any good drug addict, am secretly craving. And it don't matter how often people tell me you, you can't have an objective, you mustn't want this. There's a bit where it goes offline. Like, like, like the I am neither in the self, the juggler, the fog, the flashlight. There is a new conscious experience with no sort of witness until we go back online, until there's either a disturbance or the period ends. 
And then I'm like, oh, well, yeah, there's something else in there. There's something else in there. Now, I know with the TM people, they do neurological research, you know, but um, as far as I'm aware, the more electrode attaching as opposed to the active or whatever you said, dynamic or whatever, MRI. Like, so tell me, in your studies, what are the observations of that state? Is there something particular to this state that I'm describing? This this beyond being able to identify it as flashlight, floodlight, juggler, it's something else. Is that what you're, that's the state you're talking about? Yeah. So here's the thing. I would say, um, well, we already talked about sort of conventionally what people put, what we, what we see when we bring people in. And now there's been many, many studies done. You have people come in, they actually practice mindfulness practice in the scanner, for example. And then they, in some sense, give us an indication as some beautiful work done by colleagues at Emory, Emory University, uh, but now I think we're now proliferating in this kind of thing. While they're practicing, so these are experienced meditation practitioners, mindfulness meditation practitioners. While they're practicing, they're in the scanner, we're looking at the brain dynamics. We're looking at what networks are active. And the only instruction we really give them is when you've noticed that your mind has wandered, press a button. And so now what they can do is time the network activity to the button press. And what we find is sure enough, at the moment that they, slightly before they pressed, they were in that default mode. They were actually back to self, like you were describing. Prior to that, um, they were probably in some kind of, uh, uh, actually, sorry, right before they pressed the button, they actually were in the in the um, executive control mode. They got themselves back on track because they were aware enough to press the button. Before that, they were having what we call the salience network, that alerting network, the floodlight. Ah, where am I right now? Before that, they were actually in the uh, executive control network where they were really paying attention to the breath. So we see this sort of cyclical profile, like I'm here, I'm paying attention to my target object, mantra or breath, whatever it is. Ah, I'm noticing, I've wandered away. Let me get back on track. So we see that cyclical profile. Now, the question that you're asking is what about those in-between spaces? What about those rare, in most cases for many people, maybe as you get more practice, those, those instances aren't rare you can have a stability and fully acknowledge this is somewhere else. This is not any of those states that are much more conventional in my experience. And I wonder, I don't have an answer for you of like what exactly it is and what we find, but my hunch is it's something like metastability. It probably is something like metastability where it is not quite an, an emergence of a particular cohering network, but something that looks like it is not cohering. Um, and that's the kind of thing now we can ask with adept monks, for example, and that a lot of Richie Davidson's work uh, in his lab may be starting to look at itself uh, and other labs as well. The, the tricky part is having people that can identify that state reliably, command its occurrence, um, and then have long enough to sample it that we can actually pick it up with the MRI. Yeah. Well, so basically, I'm inviting you to come to my lab and do that for me. I'd like to come down the lab. Where is the lab? <laughs> Miami, University of Miami. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I would like that, I think. I would like to go there. There's loads of things yeah, I could take... do there. <laughs> we, would, we would be happy to put you in the scanner and actually check this stuff out because these hypotheses are at the edge of our knowledge. And by the way, it's not just that it's telling us something about the nature of meditation. It's telling us something about the nature of the mind, right? It's going back to what I was saying, metastable states where essentially there's no prominent network activity is very, is probably, as we know, tied to something like cognitive flexibility. But how does the prominence of that state lead to certain kinds of outcomes? Are people that are able to, to, to call that state upon, now if we ask them to do a creativity task, divergent thinking, are they better at it? Um, are, is their mood impacted by the, the frequency with which they do this? Because, you know, again, like I said, even though I am truly interested in the nature of the mind and how it works and consciousness as well, I'm also a practically minded person that wants to know how we can help people. Um, and what are solutions where you might not need to practice for decades on end to benefit from these practices? So I've always wanted to tether it back to something where it's actionable in our current reality. Well, I think there's a real place for that. Amisha, I've got to wrap this up now because um, I've got to do some, I've got to do a voiceover for something. But it's so amazing <laughs> to talk to you. And so I, I really, really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the um, clarity and specificity 
of your communication around something that, in my view, is by its nature somewhat intangible and ethereal. I really enjoyed your open-mindedness to the possibility that consciousness is not manufactured but is experienced and the implication that it could be non-local. I really enjoy speaking to people in the field of any scientific field that are open, that are open to it being an ongoing endeavour and a willingness to put aside the kind of biases that are pretty evident in other fields where there are clear commercial in incentives that are at play. It's, it's lovely to speak with you. I hope that we get to speak again, will we? Absolutely. Like I said, this is the beginning of a conversation. Come on down. I'm coming to that lab in Miami. I'm going to meditate in there. I want to see Wim Hof in there, <laughs> breathing crazy. I want to see people doing hallucinogens in there. There's all sorts of things I want to see monitored. We must understand. <laughs> we must know God. <laughs> and as you said, as Byron Katie says, God is reality. God We're is reality. There. Something's definitely <laughs> happening. Amushi, thank you so much for thank your you. time and for your expertise and for your for the education. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Amishi Jar. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with the hashtag Under the Skin. Remember, come and see me on tour. Go to RussellBrand.com for details and get your tickets there. Above the noise, you can go and write. Why don't you go and meditate now? Stop making excuses. Go and meditate. Jenny, she don't meditate. You can see the results. Sign up for my mailing list at russellbrand.com. Gain exclusive mailing list only news. Yeah, like I just do exclusive things. It's too long. Watch how long it is. About half hour. Who's got time? In the meantime, if you enjoyed this conversation, why not check out some other episodes? Like Carla, Jim, what are you doing? Trying to pull your eyes further apart. Sorry, my eyes are a bit tired. I'm not surprised. They must be exhausted from bashing <laughs> no. into each other. Have you listened to Carlo Rovelli? Me, personally. Why did you suggest him? Because um, you t he's mentioned in it. Oh, good idea. What about Bob Roth? Meditation. Really good. And keep checking my YouTube channel for new videos. And thank you for listening to Under the Skin. Under the Skin from Luminary.